our parents, they may have completely distorted what the gospel imagines for families, but we have a heavenly father who will never leave us and never forsake us. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's turn our attention to the scriptures as we open up the book of Colossians to the third chapter and the 18th verse. Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 18. Now there's a story that's told of a man who wanted to prove his love for his wife. Maybe you've heard this before. And to prove his love for his wife, he decided to swim the deepest river, to cross the widest desert, and to climb the highest mountain. There's nowhere he wouldn't go for his wife. So he did those things. But sadly, his wife ended up divorcing him. Why? because he was never home. (laughs) Now, at some point in our lives, you and I have sort of a romanticized, if you would, a romanticized view of relationships. And there's that view versus the real life reality of relationships. And usually that point of time, when we have the romanticized view, is when we haven't yet ventured into that next chapter of our lives. In other words, If we romanticize about being married, it's probably because we aren't married. If we romanticize about what it would like to to have children, it's probably because we've not yet had children. Or we romanticize about having that next job or to work for that company or that boss. The reason we're romanticizing that is because we've not yet worked there. We've not yet had that job or that boss. And so once we have the spouse, once we have the children, Once we get the promotion or the job, we realize what real life really is. The truth is relationships in those arenas are difficult, but there's a significant difference between the world's relationships and the Christian's relationships. Now we're continuing our study in the book of Colossians and in chapter three, verse 17, what we studied last week, part of the text that we studied sets up today's text. So look on the screen with me at Colossians chapter three. Colossians 3.17 says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, as you remember from last week, that is a blanket comprehensive statement. You can almost hear a person in Colossae listening to that and saying, well, well, wait a minute, Paul, I have a question. What specifically should I do in the name of Jesus? And you could almost see Paul smiling back and saying, well, specifically everything, (laughs) everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then in the very next line in verse 18, Paul begins to explain how to live out our relationships under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Lord of all, our relationships now take on a new master and thus a new behavior. Because the supremacy of Christ has jurisdiction over every centimeter of creation, that includes jurisdiction of our closest relationships. You could say it this way, if Jesus is the head, then we have a new and unique way to interact with the people that he's put into our lives. 
especially those who are members of his body. And so here's how we're going to outline this text together today. First, we're going to see in verses 18 and 19, the dynamic, the relationship between wives and husbands. Then in verses 20 and 21, we're going to see the dynamic specifically between children and fathers, though we could zoom out to parents in general. So if you're a single mom watching this, if you're parents watching this, it's not just for the fathers, though that is specific. This is children and you could say parents. And then in verses 22 through 25, the larger section and all the way into um, chapter four, verse one, we're going to see employees and employers. Now, for each one of these, we will look at what life was like in the first century as Paul was writing this how it was like without Christ in that first century, and yet how Christ in this community now transforms the dynamic of each one of these relationships. So so together, what I want us to do is watch how each of these relationships is affected by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with that first section, the, the relationship between wives and husbands. Look at your Bibles at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what it says in verses 18 and 19. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, follow with me, church, with each of these three statements or three relationships, you could say. Paul begins by addressing first the one who's in the lower seat. So he starts with the wives, and then he, after that, addresses the husbands. He first speaks to the children, and then he moves on to speak to the fathers. Paul is going to communicate to the servants first, and then draw attention afterwards to the masters. And what we're going to see over and over and over is this word Lord, or the word master. So as we look at this, we need to realize the husband is not Lord. The parents are not Lord. Even the master isn't the ultimate master. There's someone else in charge and in control of the Christian, and his name is Jesus. So look again at verse 18 in your Bibles, and let's see first what Paul says to the wives, the the person in the marriage with the lower seat. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, again, I told you, we're going to look at the cultural context apart from Christ, without Christ, and then we'll see how Christ informs those relationships. So Barclay gives us some explanation of what it was like to be a woman in the first century. Barclay says this, both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join the men even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right, whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights, whatever, in the initiation of divorce. Wow, did you catch that? 
a woman in the first century was a second class secluded citizen. She was even considered nothing more than property. And then we introduce into that society the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we introduce the Lord Jesus Christ, a woman is now elevated from property to humanity. You see, the Bible teaches that both women and men are created, the Latin phrases in the Imago Dei, we would say in the image of God. So the woman has, according to the Christian worldview, intrinsic worth, she has intrinsic value, she has intrinsic dignity, because, not because of her status, but because she's made in the image of God. A woman in Christ is elevated from second class to first class. In the Old Testament, she's called one flesh with her husband. And Jesus reiterates that in the New. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' own disciples, said in 1 Peter 3, 7, to the men that we are to show our wives honor as the fellow heir of the grace of life. Why? So that our prayers will not be hindered. In other words, she, your wife, is a fellow heir. You're not the heir and then she's underneath you. She's a co-heir alongside you. So now in Christ, women have been given a restored status of dignity and importance. And yet in the home and in the church and the model that we have is the Trinity, we have order. And the wife in the home and in the church is to submit to her husband. The word submit, by the way, is a very popular word today. Yeah, that's a word, just bring that up at the company meeting. Bring that up in the, in the break room. That word submit is super popular today. You hear it on almost every episode of The View, don't you? You hear it on The, the View where people talk about <laughs> submitting to husbands. Well, obviously as countercultural this notion might be, this notion of submission, even though that's countercultural, what does the Bible say? And what does the Bible mean when the Bible says submit? Sometimes it's helpful to define what something is not. So when Paul says here to the Colossian wives and to us in the first century and in every century throughout time, when Paul says submit, what does the Bible not mean? Well, let me walk you through a few uh, ideas here. First of all, number one, submission is not inferiority. Okay, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.3, and he explained that Christ is the authority, Christ is over every man, and man is the authority over woman, and yet over Christ, the authority is the Father. So you have woman, you have man, you have Christ, and you have the Father. Paul is writing, explaining this idea of authority. But we would never argue that Christ is in any way inferior to the Father, we would never argue that. He's equal with the Father, and yet he willingly submits himself, subordinates himself to the will and the plan of his heavenly Father. And ultimately, though he possesses uh, the same essence and worth, he has subordinated himself in function. And so women are equal to men in essence and in being. And there's no ontological distinction. And yet, women have a different function or role in the church and in the home. Now, those differences do not in any way imply inequality or inferiority. Not at all. In the same way that Christ subjecting himself to the Father does not in any way imply that he is inferior. Women are not inferior to men in terms of essence, in terms of personality, in terms of thinking, 
in terms of anything other than the role that they have been assigned. And so if you work at a job, you are in no way inferior to your boss. Maybe in your intellect, you're more intelligent. Maybe in your education, you have more. Maybe in your aptitude, you're superior. The only thing your boss has over you is a different title. And so Warren Wearsby says it this way. He says, anyone who has served in the armed forces know that the rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. So submission does not mean inferiority. But secondly, submission is not ubiquitous. You might say, what does that mean? Well, that simply means that a wife is to submit to her own husband. Paul reiterates this in the parallel section in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. In other words, a woman is not to submit to anyone's husband, but her own. Paul does not say women submit to men, submit to all men. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. So God is not instructing men to have authority over all the spheres of politics, business, economics, education, or general civic life. According to the Bible, it's in the church and in the home where submission is to be demonstrated. So it's not ubiquitous. Thirdly, though, submission is not subservience. You know what subservience is? That's where you do whatever is asked of you 100% of the time. That's not what submission is. A wife is to submit to her husband, but not if he is encouraging her to commit vile, criminal, or sinful acts. If, for example, a wife should not submit to her husband if he's encouraging her to sign paperwork that would cause her to commit fraud or perjury. No, a healthy Christian marriage will have deference. It'll have mutual submission as we prefer one another and we seek one another's counsel. We don't just say, I make all the decisions. The Bible says submit, woman. In fact, we as the husband are the one ultimately responsible for the decisions that are made. And we will be the one as the high priest of our home who answers to God for the decisions that we allow to happen in our home, for the condition spiritually of our home. And I can say in my marriage, in, in over 20 years, I can say that I've had to ask Jen, my wife, to submit to me in a decision I really felt strongly about, maybe less than 10 times, maybe a handful of times. I can count them um, just within my, you know, 10 fingers or less. Sometimes I was right in those decisions. And other times, <laughs> let me just say, um, you know, marriage is one of those tools where God helps build our humility. <laughs> and I was definitely wrong um, in asking her to submit. One person has said this about submission. They said, this subjection is made up of an obedient spirit, humaneness of heart, respect, and willingness. But the key to this phrase, the key to this idea of submitting is where Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. You see, that phrase defines the woman's motivation and submission. It isn't because her husband is worthy of submission because he's a sinner just like her. It isn't because she's less in dignity or value because she's in equal standing with her husband. The reason she can submit to her husband is because it honors Christ as her Lord. Jesus himself is all of our examples in submission. Jesus was equal in essence and dignity and worth with the Father, and yet he subordinated himself to the Father's plan. Jesus became obedient, we learn in Philippians 2, 
even to death on a cross. And therefore, God the Father exalted him to the highest place. So submission is fitting in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm uncomfortable spending that much time speaking to the wives and not addressing the husbands. So, lest the husbands think that we are off the hook, it's our turn now. Look at verse 19. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this would have been a stunning statement to the worldview of the Colossians. Paul is running countercultural here. He's saying, hey, your wife is not to be trampled on. She's not to be neglected. She's not to be isolated. She's not to be treated harshly. In the Christian home, the wife is to be loved. She's to be considered. She's to be consulted. And she's to be tenderly cherished by her husband. When Paul says, love your wives here, the word that he uses is, of course, where we would translate this, the word agape. We say love, but this is the Greek word that describes a sacrificial committed love that doesn't seek any response in return. One person defined it this way. They said agape is the love that was shown at Calvary. The love produced in the heart of the yielded saint by the Holy Spirit. The love that will cause the husband to sacrifice himself and his own wishes in the interest of the well-being of the wife. So husbands, I have a, a message for you. Love your wives more than you love yourselves. Husbands, love your wives more than you love your job. Husbands, love your wives more than you love your boat. Husbands, love your wives more than you love your friends. Husbands, love your wives. And that means no love for any other woman. Your wife is to be your exclusive and eternal lover. And we are not to be harsh with our wives. That, as some of us hear that and we think, oh good, I'm off the hook. I'm never harsh with my wife. Well, listen, not so fast. The word harsh can be defined as to embitter, to exasperate, or to irritate. So listen, as husbands, we aren't to live in a way that causes our wives to be bitter against us. John MacArthur says, don't call your wife honey and then act like vinegar. Uh, or if our wives have done something to cause us to be bitter against them, we're not to treat them in a harsh way. We're to forgive them and we're to love them. We aren't to live in a way that exasperates or irritates our wives. So what does that mean? It means we're not to raise our voice. We're not to belittle them. We're not to demean them. We're not to embarrass them, and we're not to coerce them. What I'm about to say should be really obvious, but sadly it's not. There should never be any emotional, physical, or sexual abuse in the marriage relationship. The husband is to love and care for his wife in light of he himself being submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul would tell the church in Ephesus in the parallel passage um, this to the husbands. He would say, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Husbands and wives, the lordship of Jesus Christ informs 
and even transforms our marriages. Now, let's move on to the second section and look at children and fathers. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Okay, so now let's go back to the ancient world and see how children were treated in the first century. Now, in Rome, they had a law, and I'm going to totally butcher it, so I'm just going to say it's a Latin phrase that means power of a father. And this law gave the male head of the family power over all of his children and all of his descendants, no matter what their age was, and anyone else who was brought into their family through adoption. So not only did the father have control over his children, he also had the right, as crazy as this sounds, he had the right to also inflict capital punishment. I mean, you thought your dad growing up was strict. Any rights, any property by law was recognized as belonging not to the children, it belonged to the father, no matter how old they were. And yet, the gospel beckons us as children to obey our parents in everything. And so the law of man might reduce your rights and cause you to rise up and seek rebellion. But God's law, the higher law, keeps our hearts grounded in willing obedience and trust. Now, Paul tells the children, obey your parents, but why are they to obey? Again, notice the phrase, he says, this pleases the Lord. So in other words, children, if you're watching us, parents, why don't you grab your kids really quick? If they're not in the room, they should be, but, but make sure they're listening up. That means that children, kids, the reason that we obey our parents, our motivation, why do I have to obey mom and dad? The reason that we do that is because we have a heart that wants to please our heavenly father. Yes, you have an earthly father and mother, but we also have a heavenly father. And our heavenly father wants us to please him. And so by obeying mom and dad, we're pleasing our heavenly father. The Bible commands children to honor their father and mother. In the moral law, we call the Ten Commandments. Now listen, honoring your father and mother doesn't change when you turn 18. It's not like, I am 17, tomorrow I turn 18, the whole honoring thing goes away. Uh, we are always to honor our parents, but obedience will take a different form. So listen, we don't obey our parents when we're grown-ups and they're unbelievers and they encourage us to live in an ungodly way. Okay, We don't necessarily obey our parents when we've gotten married and we've left father and mother and we've been joined to our spouse. We don't necessarily... We're no, we're no longer under their covering, so to speak, their home where we have to obey them. But honoring what we find in the Ten Commandments can continue no matter how old you are and no matter where your parents are at. So obedience takes a different shape, but honor is always expected. But in context here, Paul is addressing children who are still underage and living at home. They are to obey their parents and willingly, even in that cultural context where dads could exert this this capital punishment control, even putting them to death, they were still to willingly obey and put themselves under the supreme authority and ownership, not of dad, but of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that children obey their parents' authority will ultimately ref reflect their obedience to Christ. So then he addresses fathers. The fathers, remember, are the one who alone command the absolute legal power in the household. 
Okay, this is both a general message to moms and dads, to parents, but the burden of emphasis that Paul points to here is on the father. So dads, listen up. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, often we blame a child's bad behavior on the child. We would say, oh, they're too hyper. Or, you know what, they're strong-willed. Oh, you know what, he didn't get a nap. And those things might be true. But Paul points out that a child's sinful behavior might be a direct result of poor parenting. In other words, our provocation can cause discouragement and a reaction in our kids. Now, this idea of provoking, provoking our children, is a little bit misleading. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, fathers, your kids want to take a nap, so stop clapping your hands loudly every time the kid's about to fall asleep. He's not talking about pranking your kids or doing something cruel to provoke your children. One definition of provocation says this. You could define it this way. When fathers provoke their children, it could be irritating to irritate by exacting commands and perpetual fault finding and interference just for interference sake. One scholar says this, we don't have the quote on the screen, but he says, parents and especially fathers are urged not to irritate their children by being so unreasonable in their demands that their children lose heart and come to think it's useless trying to please their parents. You see, that was status quo in Roman Colossae. Fathers did whatever they wanted and the children just had to obey. But see, the gospel, the gospel comes into a household and the gospel transforms our hearts and our relationships. So now as dads, as fathers, we aren't to abuse that authority. We aren't to be unreasonable with our children. Are we to discipline them? Of course, but our discipline has to be consistent. Our demands should flow out of a heart that mimics the heart of our father. Our father in heaven does not provoke his children. He loves them. Our father in heaven does not produce discouragement in his children. No, he delights in them and he seeks their good. Paul told the Ephesians in that same corresponding section in Ephesians 6, 1, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there he gives a positive. We're to instruct them and discipline them in the Lord. So if we leave our children undisciplined, that can provoke them to anger. If we fail to give our kids instruction in the Lord, that too can cause discouragement because how can we expect them to follow the Lord and please him if we aren't even gonna teach them how? Most of us as dads, are not bent on seeking our kids' eternal destruction. We just aren't involved enough to seek their eternal instruction. That means that we as dads, if we're gonna bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, that means we need to be present and we need to be active. We need to be active in raising our kids in memorizing scripture. We need to be active to help them understand and embrace the Christian worldview. We need to be active and present and help them recognize heresy and false teaching. We would never want our sons to learn how to shave on YouTube. So why are we so passive when it comes to teaching them the way of Jesus? We need to be an encouragement to our children. Martin Luther apparently only knew severity from his father. And so he had this to say about parenting. He said, spare the rod and spoil the child. It's true. 
but beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he does well. Now, obviously that is referring to an Apple product. Give them an iPad as a um, well done. <laughs> but, but we are to love our children. We are to discipline them and we are to keep encouraging them in the Lord. Well, let's look at our third section, employees and employers. Now, invariably, you are hearing employees and employers, but in the text you're looking and going, wait a minute, it says bond servants and masters. Someone right now is thinking, okay, finally, pastor gets it. My boss really is a slave driver. No, there's a reason why we're making this connection between being an employee and being a slave. Barclay has a note that in the Roman Empire, there were upwards of 60 million slaves, largely because the Roman citizen considered it being beneath his dignity to even work. The Romans did not consider freedom to be a universal right like we enjoy. They found it to be a select privilege. It was also believed that the freedom of some was only possible because others were enslaved. Therefore, Roman citizens did not consider slavery as evil like we do today, and it obviously is evil. They looked at it as a necessity. Now, I want to just point out, this is not the same as black African slavery. Okay, this wasn't a racial thing as much as it was cultural superiority. Many different races were brought into slavery. In fact, when Rome defeated her foes, many war captives would be taken as slaves. Um, they estimate from the first Punic War, just from that war alone, they estimate over 75,000 slaves were taken from that war as prisoners of war. They also acquired slaves through trade, piracy, and birth. And they had slave markets present in most large towns. And in the public square, slaves would be marketed with signs hanging around their necks to advertise their, their virtues for potential buyers. One scholar says that in many of the cities of Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered freemen. So virtually all the work was done by slaves, doctors, teachers, secretaries of the Roman Empire. If those are your jobs today, you would be a slave in the Roman Empire. And so if you were a more modest Roman businessman, if you were maybe an artisan, maybe a military vet, you might own one or two slaves. But for the very wealthy, the number of slaves you owned could run into the hundreds. And even though some masters were kind to their slaves, that was the exception, not the rule. The idea of having a slave and being a master, it might be difficult for us. But that doesn't mean the Bible condones slavery. Some people have said, like, why didn't Paul just tear down slavery as a whole? Why did Christianity let it remain? And John Eady says this. He says, Christianity did not rudely assault the forms of social life or seek to force even a justifiable revolution by external appliances. That's important. Such an enterprise would have quenched the infant religion in blood. The gospel achieved a nobler feat. It did not stand by in disdain and refuse to speak to the slave till he gained his independence and the shackles fell from his arms and he stood erect in his native independence. No, but it went down into his degradation, took him by the hand, uttered words of kindness in his ear and gave him a liberty which fetters could not abridge and tyranny could not suppress. So we're gonna address this section from an employer and employee dynamic as this would have been the way that Paul wrote this. Note again that Paul begins by addressing the person in the lower seat first. 
He starts with the doulos, the bond servant. Look at verse 22. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Now notice with me that Paul is calling them to obey their earthly masters, and that we aren't to obey them only when their eyes are on us, or merely to please people, but we are to have sincerity of heart and we are to fear the Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. Paul is saying, you may have an earthly kurios who's not watching, but your heavenly kurios is important. He's more important and he is watching. And notice that he says, we are to do this with sincerity of heart. We're to work in all of our vocations with a sincerity of heart. I love what J. Vernon McGee says here. He says, this phrase, sincerity of heart, means there should not be any taint of duplicity. There should be no two-facedness. There should not be the licking of the boots of the employer when he is around and then stabbing him in the back when he is away. Such actions should never be in the life of a Christian. Amazing. Well, then we have verses 23 and 24. Such a fantastic perspective. Paul says, whatever you've been called to do, you're to work for the greater kurios. It is for him that you will receive an inheritance from him. So slaves, they have no right to any inheritance in the ancient world. But as Christian slaves, we could look to heaven to be rewarded. So the paycheck or the benefit that we receive on earth cannot be compared with the reward of our Lord. If any Christian slave were trying to take advantage of their master, Paul says, you're going to incur justice. There's no partiality in God's divine judgment. Now, we're going to unpack the story of Onesimus and Philemon next week when we conclude the study of Colossians. But I believe Paul is thinking of this slave and master relationship when he is writing this, very applicable to the people in Colossae. But note with me how many times Lord, the word Lord is mentioned here. He says, verse 22, you're fearing the Lord. He says, you're to, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord. He says, verse 24, it's from the Lord you will receive your reward. And then he says in verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. So listen, it doesn't matter if you have a Christian boss or an atheist one. Your employer may be unfair. They may even be unjust. They may be cheap, dishonest, or difficult to work for. But according to Paul, you're not really working for them after all, are you? You're serving Jesus, the ultimate boss. Now, let's look at the masters, or we could say the employers, the, the ones who own the businesses, or if they have any direct reports that are res they're responsible for or that they oversee. All of those apply here. He says in verse one of chapter four, forget the, the verse distinctions in the chapters, the same train of thought. He says, masters, treat your bond servants justly and, uh, and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now listen, the master would not even consider his bond servants human. They were just property. So to treat them justly and kindly 
would be today like treating your toaster kindly. I mean, you have more regard for your dog than for your toaster. And so for Paul to write this, it went against everything that the culture had programmed people to be. But again, note his motivation. The motivation for the masters to treat people kindly is that you have a master in heaven. You may be an earthly kurios, but there's a heavenly kurios. You may even have slaves who are doing wrong, but you are to treat them justly and fairly. As an employer, you're to treat your subordinates fairly. That means you're not to mistreat them. That means you're not to show favoritism or special treatment. I want to speak specifically to those of you who have direct reports, who are business owners, who are, who are bosses, managers. You aren't to minimize the accomplishments of those you dislike, even as you overemphasize the qualities of the people you do like. That's unjust. That's unfair. You aren't to lead them with suspicion and cruelty. You aren't to be an authority in their life who's obstinate and harsh. You're to treat them the way Jesus, your Lord, treats you. They're not property. They're fellow heirs, especially Christians. They're fellow heirs of eternal life. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And that means you may have more authority than they do, but you don't have any more dignity than they do. See, church, to apply this entire passage of scripture, we really don't have to do much. The scripture itself here is application. This entire section of Colossians is the reality that the lordship of Jesus informs all of our relationships. But here are some implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ that I would like you to jot down. Three things. First of all, number one, the lordship of Jesus Christ brings elevation of status, dignity, and worth. So in Christ, the inferior wife and servant in the world's eyes are now brought up to be equal with husband and master. The gospel means that no human being is an animal. No human being is a commodity. No human being is a property. Not a property to be owned or mistreated. No, we are all made in the image of God. Thus, we've been elevated to our rightful status as image bearers and our dignity flows from who we are as those created in God's image. So your status doesn't determine your worth. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if you're a minority or if you're an outsider or if you're a dreamer or if you're a refugee or if you're an exile or if you're a foreigner. You may not have the status of citizen, insider or being in the majority, but your status doesn't determine your worth. Women are not inferior to men. Wives are not inferior to husbands. Slaves or employees are not inferior to the master or employer. When Jesus is Lord, he elevates our status, our dignity, and our worth. We're now one in Christ Jesus. Now, maybe that can inform how we communicate on social media. Number two, the lordship of Jesus Christ shifts expectations from the other person to ourselves. How many times as husbands and wives are we expecting the other spouse to get busy? I've heard about people going to counseling and they're like, well, yeah, my wife won't do anything. Well, I'm going to counseling. I think I'm going so that I can grow. And so when Jesus is Lord, we're too busy setting apart Christ as Lord in our own lives that we don't have time to fuss with what our spouse needs to do. 
So we need to stop placing expectations on our spouse. Instead, we need to realize it's not they who's responsible, it's me. And so the Lordship of Jesus shifts our expectations from them to me. So husbands, don't read this verse to your wife. Hey, the Bible says, submit to me. Wives, we shouldn't say, hey, you're supposed to love me. My grandfather used to say, read your own mail. (laughs) So husbands, are we loving our wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, are we submitting to our husbands as is fitting in the Lord? See, the Lordship of Jesus shifts the expectations back to us. Well, finally, number three, the Lordship of Jesus keeps eternity in our perspective. So we might have some light and momentary trouble with a boss here on earth, but this problem is only temporal. We have a master who will make all things new and our delight will be to love and serve him forever. We may have a marriage that's broken or troubled, but Christ's covenantal love for his church will never fade. It'll never falter. His bride is called radiant and unblemished. And there's a marriage supper in heaven waiting for us one day soon. Our parents, they may have completely distorted what the gospel imagines for families, but we have a heavenly father who will never leave us and never forsake us. So whatever we do, we're to do it heartily as unto the Lord, because there's a not yet reward to look forward to. As we close, I want to share this story to remind us to do all things with the Lordship of Jesus in mind. On his 80th birthday, the famous musician and conductor, Arturo Toscanini, was um, turning 80 and someone went to his son and they said, what do you think is your father's greatest achievement? And Arturo's son said, well, for dad, there can be no such thing, no such greatest achievement. Whatever he happens to be doing at any moment is his biggest undertaking in life, whether it's conducting a symphony or peeling an orange. Isn't that a great perspective for us? That that no matter what we're doing, we're doing it all to the glory of God. We're doing it all in the name of Jesus Christ. To fix our minds on things above where Christ is seated. To do everything heartily as unto Jesus. See, the Lordship of Jesus Christ not only informs our relationships, it also transforms them. So church, is Jesus Lord of your life? If he is, then we should see a huge difference in your marriage, in your family, and in the workplace. May the Lord by his spirit have the supremacy in our lives. Father, we pray that you would allow us to submit to the supremacy of Jesus. We need help, Holy Spirit, to allow the divine work of sanctification happen in our hearts. We have to set apart Christ as Lord. This is on the daily the little decisions we make in our marriage to respond a certain way, the decisions we make as a parent to react rather than to teach, the decisions we make as we clock in and clock out and as we oversee employees. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have the Lordship of Jesus inform and transform every relationship. Help us by your spirit to submit to you as Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Amen, listen, I love you guys. I'm sorry I couldn't be there today with you. Have a wonderful week. God bless you guys. And I'm praying that the Lord will bless you and keep you, that he'll make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that he'll lift up his countenance upon you and bring you his great peace. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday, 10 a.m. at Freedom Elementary.